0: If the gospel we preach has nothing to do with God's covenant with Israel, I believe we have missed something profound. That's a quote from Messianic Jewish scholar, Dr. Jen Rosner, who's here with us today to discuss her passion and dedication to thinking critically about the relationship between Judaism and Christianity, and hopefully helping all of us to do the same. Messiah Podcast is brought to you by First Fruits of Zion, providing Messianic Jewish teaching for Christians and Jews.
1: Put your hand in mine. Together, we will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the Rabbi from the Galilee.
0: Covering some great ground here today, Jacob, our first scholarly podcast of season two as we welcome Dr. Rosner for some pretty deep conversation, but that's what scholars do, right? Deep.
1: Oh, yeah. We're going to learn a lot today. Dr. Rosner got her PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary, where she's currently an affiliate assistant professor of systematic theology. She also holds academic posts at the King's University, Azusa Pacific University, and the Messianic Jewish Theological Institute.
0: Many people are familiar with Dr. Mark Kinzer, possibly Messianic Judaism's uh, most respected scholar, and I might throw in a Messiah podcast guest from season one. You should listen to that. It's about Luke. It's really tremendous. But this is what Dr. Kinzer had to say about Dr. Rosner, today's guest. Though still a young scholar, Jen Rosner has already established herself as one of the world's leading Messianic Jewish theologians. That's a pretty big deal when Mark Kinzer says that about you. But in coming years, he continues her voice, balanced, erudite, incisive, will be heard widely and will reshape key features of the Jewish and Christian theological landscape.
1: Now, She's written a lot of meticulously cited, dense academic literature. But this year, she's coming out with a new book. It's called Finding Messiah. And in this book, she puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. She makes it easy (laughs) for everybody to understand what she's talking about, even as she explores these deep ideas and these controversial ideas. Uh, And I don't want to give anything away because she's going to tell us a lot more about this book in her
0: interview with us today. Let's go and learn with Dr. Rosner.
2: If you want to know the Jewish Jesus, don't miss out on a free subscription to Messiah Magazine, where you'll discover his life and teaching, learn about the biblical festivals, and get connected with Israel. Subscribe for free at messiahmagazine.org. Messiah Magazine is a free donation-supported quarterly publication of First Fruits of Zion.
0: We are excited to welcome Messianic Jewish scholar, Dr. Jen Rosner. Welcome to Messiah Podcast. Dr. Rosner.
2: Thank you. It's so nice to be here.
0: We're excited to dig into some, some uh, well, all kinds of things, actually, when I consider our, our upcoming questions. We've got a great podcast, but I want to start with something real, real easy. Your new book, Finding Messiah. Um, i I had the pleasure of reading an advanced copy thank you I appreciated your unique approach in this book because it's a it's a personal story very very emotionally uh, emotional personal story and a deep theological consideration for especially for you know people maybe the 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 um the average church goer, let's say it that way. It's personal and challenging, understandable, I would say, relatable, and probably disruptive to some longstanding theology. So before we really dive in, I would like to just hear Dr. Jen Rosner's heart behind the new book, Finding Messiah, why you wrote it the way you did, who it's for, what you're hoping it accomplishes. That's kind of a big three-part question. You can add it all together for us.
2: Yeah, sure. It's a great question. It's a great place to start. I mean, the book is exactly, as you said, it's sort of memoir-ish in that it is mm-hmm. a telling of at least key chapters of my own story. And that was part of, my, um, part of my desire for the book was to tell my story and to kind of rehearse these different chapters, all of which have had, you know, key relationships, key questions, key tensions that I have been struggling with and that have kind of led me to where I am today. And that includes my academic and vocational journey, my personal journey, meeting and marrying my husband, a couple international moves, um, all the all the things that that, as I said have led me to where I am today. And interestingly, my story has really brought me, very up close and personal with the kinds of theological and biblical and historical issues uh, that are raised in the book about how do we think about the relationship between Christianity and Judaism? How do we think about, you know, Jesus as Israel's Messiah? How do we think about the letters of Paul? How do we think about Constantine and Martin Luther and all of these really key figures who have shaped our understanding, again, of Judaism and Christianity today. So, so it was fun to tell my story uh, in a way that also sheds light on, I think, some really important questions. And, and so to get to the third part of, of your question, my hope is that um, the book doesn't answer all the questions, but I'm hoping to to sort of leave uh, readers who are probably mostly Christians with uh, maybe with some cognitive dissonance, things like, "Wait, how have I been a Christian my whole life and never thought, for example, about how the ritual purity system uh, influenced Jesus' ministry?" You know, things that 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 cause us to press a bit deeper into this connection between uh, Judaism and Christianity, this connection between the Christian gospel, the gospel of Messiah, and God's ongoing covenant with the Jewish people. So, so hopefully, in opening up about some of my own again, tensions and struggles over the years. It's it's inviting others to a place of embracing those tensions and, and wading into them um, and, and kind of seeing where that leads.
0: I think it does that and does a tremendous job of gently confronting the something's missing idea that we hear so much in messianic judaism the idea that oh my goodness i've been reading the bible my whole life i i never i either never understood these things never knew why they were important never thought they were relevant all those things so just a just a quick plug right off the top for finding messiah you're going to love it and what i should have said and we didn't really talk about it but you are a you are a disciple of yeshua but grew up in a traditional Jewish home, so that's mm-hmm. kind of a really important part of mm-hmm. why this story is so interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, and talking about this, something that's missing—we talk about that a lot at First to Design, like what uh, what Christians are missing out on because of the disconnection from their uh, their own texts in a way and from the Jewish heritage. And uh, it reminded me of a conversation you had with uh, Rabbi Stein on your birthright trip. Mm-hmm. When he asked you sort of the opposite question, um, he said basically what my wife says to our kids when they ask for a McDonald's, which is we have food at home. Um, he said, what's a good Jewish girl like you need some Christianity for? We have religion at home. We have Judaism. Like what, right. what was missing in Judaism uh, mm-hmm. that caused you to want to become a Christian? And I was thinking about that and I like the way you answered it in the book. Um, but I was thinking about that, uh, because from our perspective at First Roots, we, we're always talking about the other side. So I think of what's what's unique about the teaching of Jesus? Well, pr- prioritizing loving one's neighbor. Well, mm-hmm. Rabbi Akiva said that or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you heard it said, fulfill your vows. But I say, don't make vows at all. Well, Rabbi Mayer said that. So mm-hmm. what is unique in Yeshua's teachings that you don't really find elsewhere in Judaism? hmm
2: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question, um, and 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 I'd love to speak to that a little bit. I mean, I think the first thing I'd like to say is is just to emphasize basically what you've already said. And I think for Christians, it might be surprising to learn that a lot of what Yeshua says has been said by other Jewish sages. It's not completely foreign to a Jewish worldview or a Jewish, you know, set of. Uh, 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 of, of, of perspectives. And so I think to, to, to just begin that question by noting the overlap, which I think for, for, you know, probably many readers of the book might be surprising to hear Mm. how much overlap there actually is. And as I say in the book, you know, in, in, in my conversation with Rabbi Stein, uh, my response to him was about Yeshua commanding us to love our enemies. Um, which I don't think is commanded in the same way within Jewish tradition and which struck me in a really powerful way on my first brush. My first trip to Israel was this birthright trip. um, And it was my first brush with the ongoing tensions in the land of Israel. And so seeing, um, you know, among some of my peers on this birthright trip, just almost like a, like a knee jerk, maybe like visceral uh, fear. And, um, and, and, and antipathy to Arabs in the land, and I was really, really struck by that. And this this notion of like, okay, there's very deep seated issues and tensions and and conflict here. But but how do Yeshua's words speak into this? So that was the answer that I gave to Rabbi Stein, and I and I still um, I, I still kind of hold to that today. Um, but I also think that that we could we could take another uh, we could sort of take a couple other stabs at your question, uh, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with the subsequent history and the sort of parting of the ways, whereby Jewish tradition has worked really hard to show that Yeshua is not the Messiah, uh, and in doing so, I think it's obscured some of the keys to actually understanding Yeshua's messianic identity. So. Scholars like Daniel Boyarin in the Jewish world, for example, have have done a great deal to raise some of these points. Uh, and so, so if the question is what did Judaism leave behind in the parting of the ways, I think it sort of marred its own portrait of messianic expectations by trying so hard to show that Yeshua is not the Messiah. Right. So then you get you get all this Jewish. Uh, And I think it's, I think it's important that we understand something about this constant back and forth, sort of mutually exclusive definitions, self-definitions between Judaism and Christianity throughout the centuries, such that, such that Judaism is going to such a great extent to show that Yeshua was not the Messiah, that we end up kind of distorting what a Jewish picture of the Messiah might look like, at least according to sources pre Yeshua's coming. Um, And the other thing that I would say, last, last answer here. I think one of the most remarkable themes in the New Testament is the way in which it re-envisions the relationship between Jew and Gentile. So all throughout Tanakh, I would say that a a repeated theme is this kind of hostility between Israel and the nations. The nations are those who are fighting for, you know, a place in the land. The nations are those who are dragging Israel away from worshiping the one true God Uh, And this is the hostility that we see resolved within the body of Messiah, where Jews and Gentiles together are now serving the God of Israel side by side. And I don't think that Judaism embraces this kind of oneness between Jew and Gentile in the same way. I think the coming of Messiah forces us to radically reconceive Uh, Not not to do away with the distinction between Israel and the nations, but to reconceive the relationship between them from one of hostility to one of um, kind of partnership in worship. And I think that the New Testament presents a really remarkable portrait of that.
0: Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, I you, you made me think of something that I also wanted to ask that is a little less deep, but still very, very important, especially in your life, considering one um, or together. I want to learn a little bit about something that you are very involved in, Yechad Yeshua. Um, and and how it formed and you know the effect that that's had on you as a messianic jew kind of living literally between two worlds the traditional jewish world the the christian world and and so share a little bit about Yechad be yeshua because i know it's a, you're very passionate about your work there and the work that the organization's doing.
2: Yes, yes, I am. Yachad be Yeshua is just an incredible community. And and as you said, in this kind of in-between existence that I have found myself in for decades, mm-hmm. Yachad B'Yeshua is like the one place where I feel like I'm with all the kindred spirits who are also like betwixt and between. Um, and so Yachad be Yeshua was, uh, was was sort of founded or created uh, out of what began as the Helsinki consultation on Jewish continuity in the body of Messiah. So wow, in the year, yeah, I know that's a mouthful, right? <laughs> uh, in the year 2010, um, I was invited to join a group of Jewish followers of Messiah from all across the ecclesial spectrum. So we're talking Messianic Jews, Jewish Lutherans, Jewish Catholic priests, Jewish Eastern Orthodox Christian priests. Um, in Helsinki, Finland, uh, to sort of talk about what what do we all have in common despite these radically different places on the ecclesial spectrum that we find ourselves. and And what we mm-hmm. discovered was that we had a lot in common. and we were kind of searching for and were struggling with the same sets of issues in our respective geographical locations, in our respective ecclesial communities. And we felt such a depth of fellowship and connection amidst this really diverse group. Of Jewish followers of Messiah. So that began what was called the Helsinki Consultation and went on for, I think, eight years. And then we invited a larger group of Jewish followers of Messiah, again, from all across the ecclesial spectrum and from all across the world, to mm-hmm. a conference in Dallas, Texas in, in the summer of 2018. And what came out of that was what's now called Yahad Yeshua, which is an international fellowship of Jewish followers of Jesus again, from all over the world and from all of these different sort of ecclesial settings. Um, And it's just been such an incredible community that that does have quite a few Messianic Jews in it, but that also makes us learn more about what it looks like to be Catholic and Jewish and to really value both of those identity markers or to, you know, to struggle with, with, with being a Lutheran who's Jewish and and the whole Lutheran heritage with all of its good, bad, and ugly. And so um, it's just been a really rich community to me. And it's, it's provided such an encouragement, um, that uh, you know, one of the one of the the common phrases that came up at this twenty eighteen Dallas, Texas uh, conference was existential loneliness. Right, we all mm. sort of feel isolated yeah. and alone. In our churches, in our mainstream synagogues, whatever that might look like as Jewish followers of, of Messiah, and for me, Yahad bi Yeshua is like the best salve for this existential loneliness because yeah. we're not alone in right, right, being right. in feeling kind of alone in 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 this larger religious landscape.
0: So, mm. I, you you spoke to it, but just out of curiosity, what does a Jewish Catholic priest have in? in common with dr jen rosner messianic jewish theologian i mean just just a quick example outside of we're jewish and we're struggling can you like what what is it what does it mean
2: yeah, I mean it's interesting, you know, you bring up particularly the Catholics. What's really interesting from a Catholic perspective in the a Catholic Jewish perspective is liturgical calendars, right? And right. and you know, you think about things like Easter and Passover or or you know, whatever other really significant liturgical events might happen to overlap and like what does it look like to navigate those two calendars both practically but also historically? Like what do we make of uh, the intentional division at the Council of Nicaea between Easter mm-hmm. and Passover? Like, how do we um, hold on to those? And, and, and I think for Messianic Jews, it's almost a little bit easier because we can sort of brush aside the parts of of, of Christian church history that, that we don't love. Um, right. But I think if you're a Catholic and you're devoted to the Catholic church, it's not so easy. And so in some ways, right. it, it actually it. deepens the tensions. And I think yeah. it very helpfully reminds us um, that we have to honor church history, we have to honor we have to live in a place where we can both embrace but also maybe push back against uh some of these developments that make it very very difficult to live as both a Jew and a follower of Messiah in any kind of meaningful communal context
0: yeah mm. it's i I bet there are some very long and intense late night conversations that go on there absolutely <laughs> yeah, hope to, there are I hope to hear some of those yeah.
1: Well, in thinking about like some of the thorny issues of of, of embracing both Jewish identity and uh, for Messianic Jews embracing um, to some degree Jewish theology, Jewish practice, while having also one foot in this as, in this other world as a disciple of Yeshua, um, I bet that uh, there's an issue that that comes up, and Michael Visegrad talks about it. I think he called it probably the the, the most difficult issue in trying to reconcile um, Jews and Christians is the divinity of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned in your book, you you, you quote Kendall Solon at length, and, uh, who wrote The God of Israel and Christian Theology, which uh, comes with my highest recommendation. If you buy one book uh, this summer, buy Finding Messiah by Jen Rosner. But if you buy two, uh, maybe consider The God of Israel and Christian Theology by Kendall Solon. It's, it's just that good. It's that important. But you mentioned that in his book, he sort of skirts around the issue. He doesn't talk a lot about what, uh, the, the, the claim of the divinity of Jesus, mm-hmm. the effect that that has on, on Jewish Christian relations, um, and certainly for a Messianic Jewish person to, to weigh those claims. And, um, I just sort of wondered, uh, whether that has, has caused any, uh, problems or, for you or how you think through those issues. What do you think
2: mm-hmm.
1: of, um, how Visegrad approaches it or how do you approach it? Uh, what's, mm-hmm. what's, uh, what do you think about all that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah I mean, I think just to sort of to sort of set the spectrum here in in sort of classic Christian theological terms we have uh, we have the the issue of a low Christology and all the way up to a very high Christology. so low Christologies tend to emphasize the humanity of Jesus and maybe downplay or ignore any claims to divinity and then a high Christology. Um, you know, on, on one extreme, can even sort of downplay the humanity of Jesus, or mm-hmm. uh, which which oftentimes gets linked with the Jewishness of Jesus. Right? If we have this this Yeshua who's floating around three feet off the ground, it's very hard right. to connect Yeshua to a Jewish context. So that's yeah. kind of the, the the spectrum that we're working with, and and I think there's dangers in both directions here, which is which which I think um, uh, makes makes this conversation very rich and very fraught with potential heresy right yeah. uh, at least according to classic Christian terms and I think Solon I mean the God of Israel and Christian theology is absolutely yes like it is it is just sort of a book that I think every Christian could could um, could learn so much from in terms of the history in terms of the development of Christian supersessionism but um, it, it, you know I'm not the first to point out that 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 Kendall Solon's proposed solution uh, to the problem of Christian supersessionism, and that it's supersessionism in that book, uh, I think kind of downplays the significance of the incarnation and, and God's coming in Messiah. And Solon himself actually acknowledges this and has really worked very hard in his later writings uh, to present a different, and, and I would say a higher Christology. Um, he also has mm-hmm. two books coming out pretty soon, I believe. And, and his, and his, uh, book that came out after the God of Israel and Christian theology, which is on the Trinity is just phenomenal. So he's gone on, I think, to address this, um, this issue in much more robust terms. Um, And I think that, you know, to bring up Michael Visegrad is very relevant. And I think Michael Visegrad is so refreshing when he writes on these issues, because he's he's an Orthodox Jewish thinker who's not just towing the line in terms of the parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity, but he's really pushing us to reimagine the whole notion of incarnation from a Jewish perspective. And so what Michael Visegrad wants to say is, God, and he uses this very provocative language, God actually became incarnate in the Jewish people as a whole. And and, yeah. and so then he wants to say what Christians claim is that that incarnation was sort of concentrated in the one person of Yeshua, which Visegrad disagrees with. But I feel like he sort of blows open this this sort of a priori claim that like, well, Jews don't believe in the possibility of incarnation. And he's like, no, that's actually how we should think about God's relationship with the people of Israel. So I think Visegrad is very helpful in terms of laying some Jewish foundation for thinking about uh, the the notion of, of incarnation um, and, and I'll just say, I, I think you know, I wrote a book uh, with my brother in law Joshua Lassard, uh, where we're we're approaching um, issues, p- particularly about the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, from from our respective perspectives. And he kind of pushes me in that book of not having a high enough Christology. And so I'll say it's a, it's an issue that I sit with quite a bit, and I. Uh, you know, for a few months now, every day I'm reading over Colossians 1, just sort of reflecting on this really lofty language about the coming mm-hmm. of Messiah and continuing to sit with how do we avoid these sort of extremes in in, in, in what the, the territory that we venture into one way or the other when we either overplay Messiah's divinity or underplay it. I mean, I think I think this is a question I'll probably be wrestling with for the rest of my life.
0: Right. Mm. Yeah. We are, we are, it seems we are destined to live in the middle, even in our, even our, even in our Christology. I mean, Mm -hmm. but I I want to shift to the book though, but to, to speak specifically about something related to Shabbat, to the Mm -hmm. Sabbath. And, and you in, in the chapter on the Sabbath, you move from saying that Shabbat is Shabbat and that Mm. there's, you can't, pick another day i mean shabbat is shabbat Mm -hmm. um and and then though kind of and i'm going to push you a little bit on this Mm -hmm. then it seems like telling christians to consider the insistence uh the existence of the sabbath as basically just a nudge to relax on a day a week or you know to 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 take one day per week so if that question makes sense, I hope it does. What I want to ask really is, would you discourage a Christian from picking the Shabbat as their day, their mm-hmm. one day a week to mm-hmm. to rest, to honor?
2: Yeah, it's it's such a great question. I'm I'm so glad to have the opportunity to talk about that a little bit here. Um, So let me, let me, let me lay the ground a little bit before I actually dive into the question. The book Finding Messiah does not definitively answer the question of what should Christians do with all of these questions that, that I'm, I'm hoping to raise in the book. There's not like a. You know, five step guide as to how Christians should now live their lives differently, or see Jesus differently, or live their you know week weekly rhythm differently. Um, And to be honest, it's a question that I'm getting a lot about finding Messiah. Like now what? Or like so what? Like Mm -hmm. what do we do with all this? Um, And it's the most.
0: It's one of the most common questions that we ever hear in mm -hmm. Messianic Judaism because it's mm -hmm. attractive to Gentiles who say, "Oh my gosh, here's you showed me what's missing. Okay, thank you. Now what?" Mm-hmm. So I'm sorry. I I get it. I bet you are getting a lot of questions. Yes. I mean interrupt you, yes. And ahead. I actually
2: just had a conversation with Mark Kinzer, who's been a longtime mentor of mine, about this just yeah. a few days ago. Um, and I really hope here's like the here's the teaser. I really hope to write on this topic specifically. You know, I see it Excellent. as a future project of mine to sort of tease out some of the implications that finding okay. Messiah raises. Per, per, you know, mm-hmm. this being one of them, this question about mm-hmm. Sabbath. And so, with that being said, um, I think. So, so I would say that along with, with um, many other things, Sabbath is part and parcel of God's covenant with the part of Israel with, with the people of Israel. And so I think that for a Jew to honor the Sabbath, there's there's some element of covenant fidelity in that. That is how God has called and commissioned the Jewish people to live, is to have a particular rhythm to the week. I also think that it's very significant to gather for worship on on Sunday, which is the Lord's day. It's not Sabbath, right? So we're not saying Sunday somehow became the Sabbath. I think, again, Shabbat is Shabbat. It always will be. It always has been. Um, But I don't want to undermine the significance that we see already in the New Testament of gathering on the day that Yeshua rose from the dead as a day of worship and as a day to press into what it means to be Messiah's disciples. So I think that this... Mm -hmm. Saturday, Sunday tension is a very early tension for the for the issue of following community, and it's only and, and and for very good reasons, right? Like the, the the idea of Sunday worship is not originally about the sun god or you know whatever else. I think for for followers of Messiah, it is originally about about marveling over Messiah's resurrection. resurrection yeah. um, and so it later becomes this very political division again, which which sort of becomes solidified at the Council of Nicaea with Constantine, where you have this, this really intentional decision to decouple Gentile Christianity from Judaism. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of history that needs to be pressed in there. And one of the things that I um, absolutely do not want to do in this book or in anything else I write or say ever is bash the church, right? I think there's too much of that that tends to that's happen totally. in Messianic Judaism, where, um, you know, it's sort of, this is what's wrong. And Constantine was a pagan and, and Martin Luther was anti-Semitic. And so therefore we right. need to sort of just dump all that. Um, and yeah. I don't think that's the answer. I think that God, I mean, that I, I think, um, you know, the, the Christian church, the Gentile Christian church is the only place where the gospel of Messiah has been preserved and proclaimed for centuries. So while I'm pushing in the book that we recognize the shadow side of church history, I, I hope that nobody takes away that like we all need to like sort of shun all these Christian traditions, which I think are incredibly rich. So So my first point is that I actually think there's something very significant about Christians gathering on Sunday, which has become this sort of mainstay of Christian life. Um, And so I wouldn't want to say, oh, no, don't go to your church on Sunday. You need to observe some kind of Sabbath. So so there's a lot of complexity from my perspective around this issue. That being said, if a Christian wanted to embrace a Saturday Sabbath that that kind of shows, shows a kind of unity uh, with the Jewish people and enters into this kind of richness, I would say absolutely yes. Like you know, but l- come to our Shabbat table and enjoy you know the the beauty and the richness of Shabbat with us as a way uh, for Jews and Gentiles to show oneness to to you know as a way for Christians to enter into the Jewish reality. But I would hope that that would never be at the expense of a very robust after affirmation of. Christian tradition, and 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 this one perhaps in particular, because I think it's for a very good reason that that followers yeah. of Messiah began gathering on Sunday. So that's that's a bit of a jumbled answer, but I, I think it it goes to show that I think these are very complex questions. Um, and I'm not saying in the book uh, that Christians should take on Jewish practices because I think there's 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 you know again that's a pretty fraught a territory to head into. Mm-hmm. And I also think last point. I think different Christians are called to different stances. I think every Christian has something to gain from pressing deeper into the Jewishness of the New Testament, the Jewishness of Messiah, this uh, understanding of God's ongoing covenant with the people of Israel. But I think it's going to look different for different Christians in different communal settings and different, you know, commitments. I think for Christians who are married to Jews, I think for, you know, there's there's a whole spectrum that I think needs to be honored here in terms of what this might look like for different um, Gentile Christians in particular to live out.
0: It's its own podcast. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure it's, yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's well, a big one yeah
1: there's so um you know you look at it's it's almost really difficult to look at christianity in a monolithic way to begin with it's mm-hmm. it's, it's taken on so many different forms and different cultures at different times mm-hmm. um and a lot of bad but a lot of good so i can see that i can see uh, where um you know these these this re-engagement with Jewish heritage and uh, it's going to look different in different contexts. That Mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, I have a question that might seem kind of random, but this is really honestly just a personal curiosity that I have uh, that I noticed. So when I first got into the Paul within Judaism crowd, which you talk about in your book, there's uh, these academic folks, these PhDs that um, are seeing Paul within Judaism now. They're they're jettisoning the, uh, quote unquote, Lutheran Paul, who is anti-Judaism, and they're embracing a Paul that embraces Judaism. And uh, when I first heard about this, I don't know, uh, 10 plus years ago, and went and got, you know, Mark Nano's books and Pamela Eisenbaum books and all these stuff, started reading about it. I also, because I'm a curious little goblin, went to to go see what the traditional people were saying in response to this. So I got like the D.A. Carson and Mark Seifert and Peter T. O'Brien and Westerholm and all these guys. And what I noticed was um, all of them that I found were dudes, whereas in the Paul within Judaism camp, you know, you got Amy Jo Levine and Paula Fredrickson and Jen Rosner and actually quite a few more. So I wanted to ask what you thought, is this like a coincidence or is it just, is it, is it easier for a woman to revisit traditional assumptions about the New Testament or what's mm-hmm. what's going on here? What do you think?
2: Yeah, it's a really, really, really interesting question. I don't think I've ever quite like looked at it in those terms or even noticed it. I mean, I think just on a broader scale, I think it says something about the academy and the way that the academy is changing and, and, and the white male is no longer the, you know, the default academic voice, it, which, which I think is great. I think, I think having women at the table brings about new perspectives in the same way, uh, if we're talking about this sort of Paul within Judaism camp, that having Jews at the table of New Testament scholarship brings new perspective, right? I mean, all oh, of a yeah. sudden you have this whole school of Jewish New Testament scholars, so. Yeah, they're going to see some different things in reading the New Testament than this entire history of 16 plus centuries of of Gentile Christian white men reading the New Testament. Right. So I think there might be something about um, about, a, 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 you know, Jewish perspectives, women's perspectives, just different perspectives. And we could sort of go on and on about, you know, liberation perspectives and and, and all of these different perspectives that are being brought to the table, I think, in really, really rich ways um, but I think it's also worth pointing out that um, not all women New Testament scholars follow this line. And in fact, no, in my sure. own journey, some of the New Testament professors during my grad school days that challenged me the most in ways that ended up being deeply formative for me, sort of me scratching my head and saying, that can't be right, were uh, also women, you know, women mm. who women, uh, New Testament scholars throughout my, again, you know, graduate school days who, for example, didn't believe in the resurrection of Yeshua. And I'm like, wait, but, and and that kind of forced me to realize, no, everything hinges on the resurrection, right? Like, how can we, how can we say that this all matters if the resurrection didn't happen? Or, you know, I had a woman New Testament professor, um, who said, I was I was really struggling with like Paul, the Paul of his letters versus the Paul of Acts, right? Cause it kind of seems like Paul in Acts like really, really cares about Torah. And 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 at least according to a traditional reading, Paul in his letters is like, eh, Torah, you know, now we have Yeshua. And I asked her this question and she said well, the Paul of Acts isn't historical. So that's like mm. Luke's portrayal of Paul. And so again, there's there's um, th- there's a spectrum in terms of women New Testament scholars. And I think the the women that you mentioned, you know, Pamela Eisenbaum and Paula Fredrickson and Amy Jill Levine are incredible scholars. Um, but I, I think that at least it's formative in my, you know, exposure to women New Testament scholars are those who kind of forced me to think, no, no, that's, that that's not right. Like how else can we, can we think about these questions? But again, I think the larger point would just be about in the Academy today, there's a wider range of voices. And I think it's helping us to see the text in, in new ways and in really um, helpful ways in this, in this instance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, I, I, I've heard a lot of people complaining about, Oh, you know, identity politics or whatever. And it's just like, man, I really enjoy just sitting down and listening to people who have had completely mm-hmm. different lives than me because they see stuff that I wouldn't have seen mm-hmm. and you know what the more the more ideas in the marketplace, the happier I am to go through it all and just try to mm-hmm. learn something you know
2: yeah right. absolutely
0: well, speaking of new ideas uh Dr Rosner in this book has some some very uh some hilarious uh what's the illustrations we're talking about Yeshua's cloak at one point his cloak uh like we have jesus gandalf but there's another great you just have to read the book to catch these but there's another one where you're talking about mr jesus potato head Uh, (laughs) um How, how we through through the ages, you know, we read the gospels, we read Yeshua's words, we read everything, and we just decide, you know what, let's stick this part on right here, because I like the way that looks. Let's use mm-hmm. these theological ears here, and there's this, you know, this resurrection nose, and oh, but I don't like that. So let's not mm-hmm. put the feet on, because that's so we so we construct this odd-looking Jesus potato head. Now The thing is, I, there are a lot of things that the church doesn't want to put on their Mr. Jesus potato head, things Mm -hmm. that might be a a little bit too Jewish. So in the book, you talk about a lot of things to reconsider. Mm -hmm. Um, What, just pick one. What do you think the hardest thing for someone from an evangelical background, uh, would have in reconciling the jewish jesus the rabbi jesus mm-hmm. of nazareth
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: what would, what would be the part they would they would they you think they dislike most about what we want to put on in messianic mm-hmm. jewish thought
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a no brainer for me, honestly. And I talk about this a little bit in the book and it's the ritual purity system, right? It's all the boring stuff in Leviticus that like, no, certainly that doesn't, that doesn't matter anymore. You know, I feel like I can't tell you like, like, has it, do Christian like pastors preach through Leviticus? Because I want to hear what, like, what do they have to say about it? Because I think we just skip it most of the time. Right. Like that is like, The best example of what doesn't matter anymore, you know, is the Book of Leviticus, and and, and yet I would say that that's that's exactly my answer to your question: is the way in which the sort of Levitical ritual purity system actually, um, in a in a remarkable way, undergirds the the mission and the ministry of Messiah. And so this this was, I mean, this was kind of already on my radar screen, but a, a number of years ago. A book came out by a New Testament scholar called Matt Thiessen called Mm -hmm. Jesus and the Forces of Death, which is all about, you know, the ritual purity system in the Gospels. And it is just an incredible book. He's such a good scholar. Um, and, And the way that he shows over and over again that far from just kind of casting aside this whole temple ritual purity system, Yeshua is... Both working within the bounds of it and showing great reverence for and sort of deference to the system. But there's also something remarkably new that is taking place in Messiah that I think we can we can appreciate from a, from, from a different angle when we look at it through this ritual purity system. So actually it was after reading Matt Thiessen's book that I added a chapter in Finding Messiah on the Ritual Purity System, which wasn't originally supposed to be there. But I was like, I just have to talk about this. Like, it's just too good not to include. Um, And so I look at this this really, uh, I think, curious passage in Matthew 9, where you have this story about the synagogue leader's daughter who has died. And, and, and he ca- calls Yeshua to come right away and Yeshua then gets sort of in the story gets interrupted by this woman with the problem of bleeding, which is like <laughs> euphemistic language for genital discharges, which is a Leviticus yeah. thing. Um, and, and this whole, and, and then, and then, and, and she touches, this is the Gandalf passage, right? She touches the, she touches, you know, Jesus Gandalf's cloak, which are actually <laughs> his seat, if we want right. to like go back to the original, you know, text. Um, And then it goes back to this synagogue ruler's daughter who has died that Yeshua puts his hand on. I mean, this is like ritual purity written all over it. And I think in order to understand passages like this, it helps so much to have a basic understanding of the ritual purity system, which for Jews... Um, we still think about these things, you know, I mean, in terms of family purity and all these things that are like very, very present in the ongoing life of the Jewish people, but that are probably quite foreign, at least as foreign as any other thing we could talk about here to the average Christian. And to say, wait, like Yeshua, like to look at Yeshua through this ritual purity lens. um, I think it, I think it just, it makes his ministry all the more remarkable Again, not that he's throwing it away, but that he's sort of working within the bounds of it. And yet we see something entirely new going on with with Yeshua. And and, and he's not, he doesn't become ritually impure when he contacts sources of ritual impurity. So there's something amazing and divine there. And in fact, what's happening is that his purity and holiness is like spilling over. It's like, I think Matt Thiessen uses the, the phrase contagious holiness. But again, yeah, cool. we have to know something about this whole system in order to pick up on any of this. So, so that's yeah. my answer to the Jesus potato head question.
0: And it is so relevant to me right now because this is not just it's not just a Christian issue. My nephew is studying for his bar mitzvah in just a couple of weeks. Mm. His parsha, of course, is Acharei Right, so I'm having, I'm, he's studying with me. I'm doing reading through Leviticus. A 12 year old. Now, obviously, Judaism started with Leviticus. You know, that's the that's the tradition. The sacrifices are pure, so why not let the pure children read them? I can't remember exactly where it is, but it's in the Talmud. But when you when you t- tell a 12-year-old to start reading about genital discharges and inappropriate sexual behaviors with your, you know, siblings, um it's fairly uncomfortable. And so last week we're studying, I said, "What'd you learn?" He goes, "Uncle D," he calls me Uncle D. "What do you want me to say about this?" I mean, I can't talk about this. So That's it's uh it's a it's a pretty difficult subject, but I think in to your point when it's the easiest thing for, and I say that we've just talked about how important it is to keep the church in its proper and beautiful place. So I don't say this with any pejorative sense, but it's easier just to say, well, Jesus did away with all that stuff. It's not even worth considering, right? You mm-hmm. know, and that's, that's not good. But mm-hmm. that, that brings me to my last question that I want to ask you. And I'm sure Jacob has a little bit more if if you can stick with us for another few minutes, but I, That's what Messianic Judaism does. Messianic Judaism lives in the in the middle, and we're we're making those connections. It's the perfect example. Why does Leviticus matter to me? Why do I need to know these things? And Mm -hmm. so so how How does that work for you on a practical level? I mean, a practical level. You're expressing hope in the book that we can be the bridge. We talked about Yechad be Yeshua. It's a bridge. How -hmm. does Messianic Judaism help Baptist Bob somewhere in Texas Mm -hmm. develop a a tangible connection, Mm -hmm. not just to the Jewish Jesus, but to the Jewish people? Mm
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We help him to talk about genital discharges, of course, right? I mean, I just I just have to say your answer. story about your nephew is like it is so fun. To, to teach about this to undergraduates because you want to see undergraduates <laughs> yeah. squirm and like Squirming, avoid yeah. eye contact. It's amazing. Right. It's like my favorite right. day of, of teaching is when we get to talk right. about dental discharges. Okay. This is
0: supposed to be a seminary. We don't, we're not allowed to talk what? about these things.
2: It's so fun. I just love it. And it's like, that's it. Judaism <laughs> is very, very embodied. Let's talk about our bodies. Let's talk about how yeah. they you know interact with our spirituality. So, anyway, great enough chapter. on that. Great we'll we'll move on. And
0: finding Messiah bodies. It's a great chapter. In your book,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it has everything to do with being embodied and and recognizing mm-hmm. that we are human beings, and that Yeshua was a human human being. And let's talk about all the implications of that, right? Yeah. Um, but to come back to your question, I mean, I do think and I and I write in the book about painful experiences where as a Messianic Jew, I was excluded from certain, um, you know, settings of Jewish Christian, you know, dialogue meetings and and things like that. Uh, it's a very sore subject in the larger landscape of, of Jewish Christian relations. And yet I think that there's really hopeful signs. And I think someone mentioned Mark Nanos already in this podcast. Uh, Mark Nanos actually, uh, who's, who's a major friend of the Messianic Jewish movement, has said, like, you guys are like the living, breathing reality of what I'm trying to study mm-hmm. in the first century in 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 mm-hmm. pressing into the new testament again there's of course there's 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 obvious differences but but i think you do have certain jews who say wait a second this is actually the embodiment of of this reality that you know for example the paul within judaism camp is trying to re uh, like t- trying to sort of um discover a new in in reading the new testament so i think i think there's so much potential um on both sides and i think i mean the whole book my book is is geared largely to christians and 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 wanting them to press into this but i think the the larger point is not just like sort of what can we gain by reading leviticus and, and 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 sort of understanding ritual purity those kinds of maybe a bit more obscure issues but but one of the biggest issues that i want people to consider from the book is god's ongoing election of the jewish people which is not just right. something that was true you know in the days of Moses or in the day it's true today you know like i want christians to think about jews as the elect people of god today and so it does raise all kinds of implications not only about practices or biblical hermeneutics how we how we read our bibles but about understanding this um, this non analogous connection between Jews and Christians, you know, John Howard Yoder says that he, you know, he's a Christian ethicist says that Judaism is a non non Christian religion. Like you cannot just lump it together with Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism as these sort of non Christian religions. We study those in in a sort of world religions class that doesn't, you know, that those are non Christian religions. There's, that's not true. And I think that in order for Christians to understand, their place as, as sort of God's chosen people, it is in joining. It is that Messiah offers kind of this on ramp for Gentiles into covenant with the God of Israel, who has been in covenant relationship with the people of Israel long before Messiah ever came. And so there's huge implications um, in terms of Jewish Christian relations here. And again, because the book is, is mostly geared towards Christians, Um, I would love to see Christians building relationship with local, you know, Jewish synagogues and learning, you know, I, there, there's um, just one example that comes to mind. Amy Jalevin wrote this really great piece on how to avoid anti-Judaism at Easter, because this is a time that's so fraught historically in terms of um, really messy and violent Jewish Christian, um, you know, hostility. And so I want, um, I guess I want to bring all of that onto the radar screen of Christians, like how how dark the history has been between Jews and Christians, and yet how hopeful it is in our day, in the aftermath of the Holocaust, in the aftermath of the creation of the modern state of Israel, in the aftermath of the Second Vatican Council. We're living in this whole new day of Jewish-Christian relations. And I truly believe that. Um, there will increasingly be space for Messianic Jews at that dialogue table. I think, especially as Messianic Judaism gains more academic credibility, um, I think, I think that it's, it's not going to be excluded forever. Uh, and, and the questions, as you're saying, and this sort of really, um, unique position and perspective that, that Messianic Judaism is able to offer, um, I think it's, I think it's just, I think we're just seeing the beginning of it to be very honest.
0: God willing. That's a a, Mm -hmm. a good answer.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it must feel pretty cool to be a a part of it as a Messianic Jewish uh, PhD. Um, Yeah. People like you definitely add credibility to the movement. We're thankful that you exist. We're thankful to have you on the podcast today. I have one more official question and then we can have a fun little thing we like to do right after that. Um, In your book, you contrast uh, two different ideas about freedom, and I really, really like the way that you put this, um, because it resonated with me, because I'm an an evangelical American Christian, I was raised real conservative, Um, theologically all my curriculum was all written by fundamental Baptists, right? So there's there's this, um, I think you hit it on the head when you said a lot of, at least in Protestantism, um, freedom is equated to an idea you call liberty, which is freedom from constraint. It's the freedom to kind of do what you want. And in a Christian context, it's freedom from the Old Testament. It's freedom from the purity system. It's freedom from the laws and the rituals and so forth. Whereas in in Judaism, you describe an idea that's very different. You call it liberation. Mm -hmm. And liberation is the freedom from all the horrible things that we would do to ourselves with no direction from God, all, all of the consequences of a of a selfish or self-directed life. And the question that came up in my mind when I read that is, um, do you see the emphasis on liberty, uh, you know, living without constraint in American Christianity as being a, a particular problem in the American church to unravel, given that liberty in America is not just a religious idea, but a political mm-hmm. ideal?
2: mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is such a great example of how we just bring our lenses to the text without even really thinking about it, right? They're just so close that I think when we as Americans read the word freedom in scripture, we just instantly have an idea of what that means because of American history, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like, sure. this is what we think of And and without even without missing a beat, we sort of we sort of apply that understanding to the text. And I think this is where it's helpful um, to to not problematize the text, but but let's remember that the text is that there is some distance between us and the text. And I think this is a great example again, especially as Americans, where it's all about liberty, like, do not tell me what to do, do not tell me what color to paint my house, do not tell me what, you know, anything, like, that's what we are all about. And I Mm -hmm. think it kind of, it skews our understanding of a biblical notion of freedom, which, of course, has everything to do with, with constraints, right? Not with doing whatever the heck I want, whenever the heck I want. And I think Judaism, the way that it um instructs us of what we do and don't do with our bodies with how we structure our time like it seems to an um, to to sort of just like surface level american culture like heck no like no i don't want all those restraints but that's right. but that's biblical freedom you know and that's christian discipleship even if we want to you know divorce it from Jewish practices. So I do think it's, it's, it's a particular problem, um, for, for Americans and maybe for Westerners in general. I think, hmm. I think part and parcel of that is this individualism that's tied into the American story, right? Like I yeah. think part of what as Western or American Christians, we, we can learn from the Israel, the people of Israel peace is this communal corporate aspect that that is a a big stretch for us you know it it goes along with the liberty thing like i'm it's the me it's the me thing like my ipod and my iphone like it's all about me right and the enlightenment just kind of feeds right into this so um i think that uh these these aspects of our culture which of course have like a very rich history behind them you know like i'm a big hamilton fan right like let's all talk about the history of our country um but they do kind of sometimes cheat us of a deeper more biblical understanding of certain key concepts like freedom and i think this also relates back to something we we're talking about earlier that you know with re- with regard to the sabbath question right should gentile christians observe sabbath i think that jewish tradition is valuable like every christian is going to have their faith enriched by by learning more about jewish tradition and god's covenant with the people of israel mm-hmm. across the board i think oh, it's yeah. going to look different for different people and so for americans who are used to liberty and individualism like i think we have a set of things to learn from god's covenant with the people of israel and 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 the gift of torah within that covenant i think if we're talking to you know west africans for example, there might be a different set of things. That's a very communal culture. I think this is why it's problematic to have like a sort of a one size fits all answer for how Christians ought to engage Judaism or Jewish practices. I think it really depends on on culture and context and calling and communities. That was alliteration. There, did you get that? Um, that all these good. different factors that um, that 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 were. It's not one. It's not cookie cutter. You know, I think these are complex questions. And and one of the things I want to do is sort of honor where different Christians uh, or Jews or Messianic Jews. I mean, this is the whole Yahad be Yeshua thing, right? It's not. We're not telling everybody that they need to live like I do as a Messianic Jew. It's it's trying to learn from each other as we approach a, a common set of questions and concerns. And so I think this is maybe another example of that.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, that's, uh, that's you've given us a lot to think about. Um, we've learned a lot from you. Uh, I learned a lot reading your book um, and I just really enjoyed it, but we're not done yet because at the end of every podcast, we like to have a, a rapid fire round with questions that we don't give to the guests in advance. And we're going to ask you to answer these off the top of your head. The only thing I can promise is that the stakes are low. So Jen Rosner, PhD, favorite airport to hang out in?
2: Um, Heathrow.
1: Nice. Favorite old school vineyard song from back when you were going to a vineyard church?
2: Oh, nice. (laughs) Um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like we lift our holy hands up, right? Does anybody know this song? What's it called? That's kind of the chorus. Now you're putting me on the spot. I'm getting nervous.
1: That's exactly what we wanted. We, Perfect. Thank we'll, you. We'll we'll Google it later, and okay. we'll and we'll look Put it up it in and the we'll show notes. It. Right. We will. Uh, favorite variety of apple to dip in honey on Rosh Hashanah? You a red delicious person, or you got something better?
2: Oh no, Honeycrisp. All Honeycrisp. If you haven't tried it, go buy one. Honey. Crisp. No, that yeah. would have been honey my crisp.
1: answer. That would have been yeah. my answer. So for all of our listeners who track the podcast, Fuji and Honeycrisp tied for first. Okay. <laughs> you get to have one lunch with one historical figure named Moses, but you can't pick the Moses. Who do you pick?
2: um, Moses (gasps) Mendelssohn. That That was also my choice.
1: We're twinsies. Oh my gosh. Now this is the last question I have for you. And it's a question I get a lot. And from now on, your answer that you give now is going to become my answer to other people. (laughs) High school students, undergrads, they ask me where, where should I go for uh, an undergrad or where should I go for a master's? to where I'm going to get exposure to the Jewish Jesus, to Paul within Judaism, I don't just want the, a traditional uh, view that hasn't taken any of the new uh, scholarship into account. Where should these people be applying?
2: You know, I, I sound very biased in saying this because I happen to teach here, but the King's University in Texas is amazing. And and, and my good friend David Rudolph is the director of the Messianic Jewish Studies program there. Undergraduate master's program D program, all with these kinds of questions in mind, all fully accredited. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that, in my in my opinion.
1: There you go. Gonna... All right. Plug for the Kings University. Weren't you gonna go there, D- uh, Damien? I told uh
0: I was. I didn't pass the background check. Oh, there you go. No. Well just kidding. <laughs> no.
2: Damien, reconsider, man. This is I will, this is... I will. Okay. Okay. It's such a great program. I, I have to say, I'm very, I, I I just tell everybody that they should go there. And we, and we talk about general discharges there. So just, you know, get that on Ooh. the record as well.
0: That's I'm sold. And so will my <laughs> nephew. He now knows right. his future path.
2: <laughs> totally. He's going to
0: spend the rest of his life speaking. Uh, thank you, Jen. Appreciate you so much. And in so many ways, thank you for your contributions to the Messianic Jewish movement, to your sensitivity to not being what I would call a Messianic Jewish bully, uh knocking people over with ideas like bowling pins and saying this is what you have to believe that's you you reference that in the podcast too much of messianic judaism has been guilty of that when trying to deal with our christian brothers and sisters so and just thank you for your your incredible scholarship and i'm looking forward to the next book that you hinted at we've got a pretty strong uh book list that's from this podcast that we're going to have to put in the notes. But speaking of books, your book is currently uh, available for pre-order, correct? Mm
2: -hmm, Correct.
0: Releases on?
2: May 24th.
0: May 24th. How can people connect with you to learn more about what's happening in Dr. Jen Rosner's life?
2: You can go to my website, jenrosner.com. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. You can subscribe to my monthly newsletter where you get to hear all of my musings. Um, and I would love to connect with with listeners, with readers. That is, that is my joy to sort of um, you know, make connections and 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 be together on the journey.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for spending time with us today. Looking, uh, may may Hashem continue to bless the work of your hands and your heart and your mind. Thank
2: Amen. you so much for having me. Torah Club is the world's fastest growing Messianic Jewish Bible study. You can start or join a club today at ToraClub.org. Know Jesus better through an in-depth small group Bible study and fellowship with other like-minded disciples. Start a club or join a club at ToraClub.org. Torah Club is where disciples learn.
0: Well, I I thoroughly enjoyed that. One of my favorite parts of talking with Jen is her absolute relatability. And Mm. that comes through in the book. Um, you know, she's gonna she's gonna be able to reach a wide audience with this book. Not that it's gonna be not that it's gonna be uh easy material for everyone, but she the the thing about having her on our team, so to speak, in messianic Jewish scholarship is that she is sensitive to, you know, the audience. And and I think so often we talked about it a little bit in there, the messianic bully who mm-hmm. says you know, Easter, Christmas, you know, all the, just the things that you are so, they're so played out and they're so Mm. unhelpful. So you are a, you are a good evangelical Christian boy, Jacob. Yeah, I think
1: I'm still, I'm still in good standing with the the evangelical church. As far as I know,
0: you'll have to be that. Well, I'll leave that. But
1: like, there's one big, there's one big uh, evangelical church with a, right, with a bunch right. of people around a table. You know, John Piper is there, and uh, <laughs> I mean, Andy Stanley's there, think... and they're excommunicating people who who uh, <laughs> start speaking Hebrew. I don't know, but uh, no, I'm, I'm in good standing with my little evangelical church that I go to, and uh, here in the middle of nowhere in Michigan.
0: Well, I would think that her her attitude would be what you would like to hear, refreshing and sensitive to, you know the people you interact with pretty regularly.
1: Yeah. And, you know, she's got a lot of, of assets to draw on a lot of strengths. I mean, she's, she is Jewish. Uh, She went to church for a long time Uh and, you know, after becoming a Christian, she's lived in Israel. Um, All of these experiences have given her a sensitivity, I think, to all the different kinds of ears that this message can land on. And she has developed a, a really good way of talking about these issues that, Uh, Can reach a broad audience. So, for those of our listeners who are maybe looking for uh, some books they can give out to their friends who are confused about what they believe, this might make the list of uh, something that's provocative without being offensive or judgy. You
0: know what I mean? Yeah, it's it is. It's very very approachable, and you know, I I appreciated we we, we pushed just a little bit. We talked about Christology and 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 Gentile practice uh, practice in Messianic Jewish synagogues. I I hope that she will consider writing that book that that takes yeah. that to the next level because that really is its own podcast. That is. Like the the five million dollar question: What do I? What do I'm a Gentile? What do I do? Yeah, yeah. And
1: so you have people like people from a really diehard, um, like for example, my background. What I was taught in my school curriculum and even in like college was that the goal was to be as close to the first generation disciples as possible, like the mm-hmm. real, true church the way it has to look if it's going to be spirit filled and if it's going to be accurate like historically it should look like it like it did in the book of acts right? right and uh then once you learn what it looked like in the book of acts you start thinking well uh it was Judaism so is this uh is if if you still have that other idea in your head that that's what i have to do that's the only real uh way to do following uh, following jesus then you're gonna really have a lot of questions and you're gonna start drifting toward uh, you know trying to take some of this stuff into your life and how to do that in a respectful way and, w- and what to do and when uh, these are all these are like she said, they're complex questions and I think people are going to come up with different answers to them and depending on their context
0: yeah that that was the, that was something I really appreciated as she said the real answer to this to the to the five million dollar question is there is not an answer to the $5 million question. And she stated that you can't just, you can't just, you know, uh, what's, is it a square peg in a round hole or a round peg in a square hole? It seems like the round peg would actually fit in the square hole. So it can't be that. Um, yeah, it would really but, depend on the size of the peg. You could get just about any peg and
1: just about any hole as long it's as the peg it's, is just, small it's enough.
0: a stupid analogy or whatever it is. But <laughs> the point being, uh, that, the how where you're coming into this is going to absolutely affect what you do what you're encouraged to do what you want to do there's no you know we have the didache and everyone says all right that you know there was the instruction manual well Mm -hmm. maybe 1900 and some years ago it's 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 different now it has to be approached very very carefully and and gently so yeah uh, I don't think we're going to provide that that answer, even with Dr. Rosner's new book. God willing, it comes out.
1: I think you know we'll stumble forward together, is the way I look at it. I mean, on a on a, on a you know a geological time scale, Messianic Judaism is 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 pretty young. You know, we have, uh, you know, we maybe future generations will continue the conversation. There's we do have a sense of urgency. I think that we have to get this figured out right now, or we're living in sin, or something like that. Right, right. I think right. there's an element of this we have to trust God with. He's, we have to trust that He's leading us as a community, and even if no individual has all the answers, He's working in our midst, and over time, uh, maybe things will become clearer to us. Not, not that that absolves us of the responsibility to study and try things and talk about it, um, but you know, under the umbrella of. Understanding that God is the one who's moving here. And
0: we're just part of a much bigger picture. Stump, what'd you say? Stumbling forward together? Yeah, stumbling forward together. I like that. We, we do that at, uh, at my congregation here. We've got a very, very diverse group of people. And there's, there's actually no instruction manual. Outside of, really? you know, you mentioned the Acts. like, yes, let's go back to the Acts church. All right. Well, that means we have to start arguing about forced circumcisions. Is that, uh-huh. you know, do we want to, we go headed back that way? I mean, yeah. we're, we are, we are adapting into a new time and people like Jen Rosner are going to help us do that. I'm glad, as we said in the podcast, I'm glad she's on the team. Yeah.
1: Yep. We need all the PhDs we can
0: get. That's it. <laughs> All right, man. Appreciate it. Thank you to all of our faithful Messiah podcast listeners. We will speak with you next time. Blessings.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. This podcast is an extension of Messiah Magazine, available at messiahmagazine.org. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review along with a five-star rating wherever you're listening now. Today's podcast was hosted by myself, Jacob Franzak, along with Damian Eisner. Our executive producer is Boaz Michael, and the editor-in-chief is Daniel Lancaster. This episode was directed and edited by Jeremy Schoenwald. Original music was written and performed by Joshua Aaron. The show notes for Messiah Podcast were edited by Candy Bishop and are available at messiahpodcast.org. If you are interested in learning more about the Bible from a Messianic Jewish perspective, check out Torah Club, which is an international network of small study groups who meet weekly to study the Bible together from a Messianic Jewish perspective. To start a club or join a club, go to torahclub.org. Until next time, Shalom. Like the waters cover the sea Let his love cover
2: you and me Like the waters cover the sea